Now hear a reading from Genesis 37. But Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Jacob, his 17-year-old son, was taking care of the flocks with his brothers. Now he was a youngster working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son born to him late in life, and he made a special tunic for him. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and were not able to speak to him kindly. Joseph had a dream. When he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. There we were, biting sheaves of grain in the middle of the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright, and your sheaves surrounded my sheaf and bowed down to it. Then his brothers asked him, Do you really think you will rule over us or have dominion over us? They hated him even more because of his dream and because of what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him, saying, What is this dream that you had? Will I, your mother, and your brothers really come and bow down to you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept in mind what Joseph said. When his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, Israel said to Joseph, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. So Jacob said to him, Go now and check on the welfare of your brothers and of the flocks and bring me word. So Jacob sent him from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph reached Shechem, a man found him wandering in the field. So the man asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are grazing their flocks. The man said, They left this area, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now Joseph's brothers saw him from a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this master of dreams. Come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of the sisters, and then say a wild animal ate him. Then we'll see how his dreams turn out. When Reuben heard this, he rescued Joseph from their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. Reuben continued, Don't shed blood. Throw him into the cistern that is here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this so he could rescue Joseph from them and take him back to his father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the special tunic that he wore. Then they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. When they sat down to eat their food, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying spices, balm, and myrrh down to Egypt. Then Judah said to the brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let's not lay a hand on him, for after all, he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite purchase merchants passed by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. The Ishmaelites then took Joseph to Egypt. Later Reuben returned to the cistern to find that Joseph was not in it. He tore his clothes, returned to his brothers, and said, The boy isn't there, and I, where can I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a young goat, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they brought the special tunic to their father and said, We found this. Determine now whether it is your son's tunic or not. 
He recognized it and exclaimed, It is my son's tunic. A wild animal has eaten him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters stood by him to console him, but he refused to be consoled. No, he said, I will go to the grave mourning my son. So Joseph's father wept for him. Now in Egypt, the Midianites sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word. Lord, as we process the, uh, the painful betrayal of the 11th born son of the family of Jacob, we ask, Lord, that you would uh, teach us uh, particularly about our relationships with one another and draw us mind and heart, body and spirit to King Jesus. Before we get into this text, the, the great gift of Christianity is a relationship. At the very heart of Christianity, the great gift that we have is a relationship that through Jesus Christ, God the Father offers a relationship with himself. And, and that's offered to every person on planet Earth. Jesus has made it available, not just to the chosen people, the chosen nation, but he has extended it out to you and to me. And that, that relationship is um, beyond measure. It is, it is a richness, a depth, an intimacy, a joy. It is the climactic human experience. I don't really understand much about what the the next life, or after our death, after this world uh, passes away, after the Lord renews it all. I don't understand much of what that will be like, but I do understand this. What we experience in part in that relationship now, we will experience in fullness then. That relationship is available to you right now. But that's not the only relationship that Jesus gives you. It is the primary relationship he gives you. But there's another one. We'll call it a secondary relationship, which God uses as one of his primary means for that primary relationship. He has designed his people to enjoy his presence most in the midst of this secondary relationship. So what am I talking about? Am I talking about marriage? No. Friendship? No. I'm talking about brotherhood and sisterhood. By the perfect life and death of Jesus, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. Therefore, in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. Just now, we baptized Hung Lee. And yes, Hung got all wet, right? <laughs> Very wet. But he wasn't, he wasn't primarily baptized in water. He was baptized in a name. The name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name that we share in common. The name that unites us together. He is now brother with every believer through the ages. 
He's our brother. It will sound a, a little old-fashioned, and I usually prefer inclusive language, but I'm going to talk about brotherhood today. I, I'm, this is supposed to apply to men and women in our midst. The reason I'm going to call it brotherhood is because brotherhood is at the very heart of today's passage. Our passage, what you just heard, uses the word brother far more than the story or the grammar requires. Michelle may have even noticed it as she was reading it out loud. She's repeating this word. And, and, and the English translations don't even translate every time the word is used because it is not grammatically necessary. It doesn't make the story make more sense. In fact, the word brother is there so often it makes the story a little clunky. In the Hebrew, they use the word brother 21 times in this passage. And that is not an accidental number. Genesis chapter 1 uses numbers, uses words a certain number of times to highlight the big ideas. Uh, it, it says, it was so seven times. It says, it says, it was, God says, it was good seven times. It uses the word, the phrase, heaven and earth 21 times. Do you hear the pattern? These are multiples of seven. When we get to chapter 4, we see the first set of brothers in the story, Cain and Abel. And that story uses the word brother seven times. So when we get to this story and the word brother shows up 21 times, it's an exclamation point. It's saying, pay attention. There's a, there's a theme that started back there that follows through to this one. Pay attention to the brotherly relationship. Now, we skipped chapter 36 because it is so many names uh, and uh, just a, a list of names and generations. But in, that, in chapter 36, Esau and his family, that's Jacob's brother, they move away. And the chosen line of the chosen family has finally settled in the promised land. That's where chapter 37 begins. And perhaps the first hearers of these stories, the Israelites in the wilderness, they're saying, hey, Finally, the people of God are going to settle down and be who they are. Finally, it's going to happen. But of course, that's not what happens. Immediately, we learn that the 10 older brothers hate the 11th born brother, Joseph. And why do they hate him? They hate him because their dad, Jacob, shows so much favoritism to him. Guys, it's not mere favoritism. Um, you, you may know about the, the mini colored coat, you know, the, the technicolor dream coat even. Um, you may know about that. Uh, so that comes from the Greek translation. It, it doesn't really use the word for many colors in the Hebrew. What, what this special coat that Jacob gave to Joseph is, is a sign of royalty. It's a symbol to all the rest of the brothers that even though this guy is 11th in line, I have chosen him to carry the birthright and the blessing. He will be the family leader. This 17-year-old geek is going to be the family leader? That's what the guys are feeling. Of course, it wasn't smooth sailing with all of them before this. Uh, we're talking about 12 boys from four different moms. The moms were in fierce competition with each other. I mean, even giving birth was a contest between the moms. And there can be no doubt that each 
pod of full blood brothers, you know, the brothers who shared the same mom, they were in competition with any uh, with their half brothers. When Reuben sleeps with uh, with one of Jacob's wives, Bilhah, in chapter 35, that is an attempt to seize family leadership from his brothers. He wants to get it early. In chapter 34, when Levi and Simeon attack Shechem, uh, it's an act of authority that should have been their father's decision. They're trying to take authority. And when Joseph, the oldest son of Rachel, has a chance to tattle on the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah at the very beginning of the story, he jumps at it because it further establishes him as the favorite, as the family leader. These relationships are tense already. They all want to be the greatest. You know, just like every other set of siblings. I mean, we read this and it seems pretty dramatic, but, you know, I'm sure none of your parents favored one of the kids over the others. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure none of you experienced being the favorite or the least favorite in your family. I'm sure no one here has had difficulty with your siblings when you're sorting out your parents' will and estate. Time your parents spend with you. Surely everyone here has a constant and open relationship with your siblings right now, right? Right? I mean, of course not. I, look, I, I have two sisters. I love my sisters. But the honest truth is that those are two of the most complicated and at times difficult relationships in my life. That's what happens. When we're meant to pay attention to how difficult brotherhood is. And so was the first audience of this story, the Israelites. There they are in the wilderness. They are all descendants of these 12 boys. All right, so in a sense, they're all distant brothers. We would say cousins, but they're all distant brothers. And throughout the law, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, there's special provision toward brothers that is called for again and again. If your brother is in trouble, it's your responsibility to take care of him, to keep him from falling into servitude, to care for his family if he dies. So how do these brothers treat each other? When it comes to Joseph, they are burning with jealous rage. And it makes sense. Any Lord of the Rings fans in the room? I know you're out there. That's all of you. Um, so <clears throat> you may remember the way your stomach turns when the steward of Gondor, Lord Denethor, uh, openly favors his son Boromir over his son Faramir. In fact, it's brutal to watch Boromir has died and Lord Denethor says to his, his surviving son, Faramir, I wish that you had died in your brother's place. It is painful. It's hard to watch. We feel the injustice of it. And in real life, these 10 older brothers feel the injustice of Jacob's treatment of Joseph. He's bucking cultural trends. At 17, Joseph is a product of his father's favoritism. He has new, no problem sharing his dreams. He thinks they're going to like the dreams, I, I imagine. Hey, check out these dreams. I really am the special one. Check out these dreams that I had. I think the Bible tells us that jealousy is one of the great destroyers of families. 
of sibling relationships. It destroyed the first brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel because he's jealous of God's relationship with him. These brothers are jealous of Jacob's affection for Joseph, so they plot to murder him. If you have, a, you know, if you have siblings, your lives have turned out differently than each other. It's just a simple fact. You know, you started with this same parents, same general opportunities, and yet some of the siblings have been more successful in a worldly sense than others. Some have, some have, you know, easier family situation than others. Some have easier friend situation than others. It, it all happens. I mean, we feel that beyond our families, like people that you went to school with. You know, I look at some high school and college buddies and I'm like, how is that guy a millionaire now? He's a doofus. <laughs> we feel that jealousy. And parents, if you could snap your fingers and eliminate one trait from your kids, if you have multiple kids, I would submit jealousy would be a, a nice one to consider. I mean, any time in my household that I have a special, you know, special moment with one of the kids. It's not a planned moment. There's a special moment. If the others see it, they are taking note. All right. The four-year-old will openly say, do that for me, daddy, right away. And the others are just keeping score that will work out in therapy in a couple decades. <laughs> for these brothers, the jealousy bubbles over. The only reason they don't kill him is there's another power struggle between the brothers. Reuben wants to be the leader. He delays the murder. Otherwise, uh, Reuben basically gets ignored. You know, he, he disappears from the scene. He's kind of a, presented as a fool in this story. Judah wants to be the leader. He convinces them to, to sell Joseph to the traveling merchants. And they go with Judah's plan. I think in this story, Judah kind of becomes the de facto leader of the brothers. But we can't miss that the, there's incredible irony in this story. All of the messy brotherhoods of the past are come roaring into this passage. Who do they sell Joseph to? The Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? They're the offspring of Ishmael. You know, Abraham's first son, the one who was banished when Isaac was born? Banished, left for dead, sent away with nothing. They're sold to, he's sold to the Ishmaelites. Joseph is being exiled just like Ishmael. It's the same as death, maybe worse. He is sold into slavery. He is trafficked. The painful irony continues. The brothers take Joseph's special tunic, and what do they dip it in? They dip it in goat's blood, and then they take it to their father to deceive their father. Hmm. Using a cloth that has a part of a goat connected to it to deceive a father, to get a birthright or a blessing back. Does that sound familiar? If you've been tracking along with the story, that's exactly what Jacob did to his big brother Esau. He, he put goat skin over his arm and deceived his father and his brother to steal the blessing. Broken brotherhood echoes through the generations. It doesn't just heal with time or distance. 
It festers. It comes up in strange ways. And if you examine your family line, you will find patterns that have gone from generation to generation and are affecting you now. And it's great to know about that stuff. Friends, this is just the beginning of Joseph's story. For now, we're left with very little hope. He's gone down to Shechem. Uh Uh-oh. Then he's gone further down into the pit. Then he's gone further down into Egypt. He's going down, down, down. He's descending, like going into death. But we get to see this story in the light of Jesus. Though Jesus was not foolish like Joseph in the way he spoke, he had a unique relationship with his father that yielded hatred and jealousy. When he talked about his father, the Pharisees were like, how dare you speak of God that way? They called it blasphemy. He was betrayed for a payment in silver coins. Joseph for 20 coins, Jesus for 30. One of the guys in our Thursday Bible study said, inflation. (laughs) (laughs) From the moment Joseph arrives with his brothers and they throw him in the pit, he never utters another word. His silence here will lead eventually to his brother's salvation. You'll see how the story plays out. And when Jesus is accused, when he is betrayed, he is silent before his accusers. Their compliance with the punishment is actually the thing that initiates the healing process between the brothers. If we take our cue from the New Testament, many believers describe our relationship with one another as brother and sister. All of us who are joined together in faith, all who will come together at this table, this is a family meal that we take together. Jesus started this. He referred to his 12 disciples as his brothers, and he picked 12 to restore this family. And those Those 12 disciples, they openly argued about who was the greatest, who would get to sit at Jesus' right and left, who would be the leader of them. They struggled as much as Jacob's sons. They didn't throw one of them into a pit, but one of them did betray another for money. Gosh, the Israelites in the wilderness, you even have the leading family, with it, which is Moses and his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. And at different points, Aaron and Miriam are enraged toward Moses and the special privileges that he has with God. It happens all the time. This is common to churches too. There, gosh, whenever there's a hint of a clique or favoritism, even in our congregation, If you feel like you're on the outside of that, you feel it, don't you? It's hard. It's painful. That idea of preferential treatment. And and it happens, guys, you know, I know a lot of pastors. I know a lot of different churches. When it seems like things are going great for another church in a way that we're struggling, you feel it like, God, we're we're trying. We're being faithful. Why are you? That jealousy comes up again and again. We feel it when our brothers and sisters in faith behave in a way that we disagree with. This is a great reason to get off of social media, by the way. You don't see it as much. (laughs) Um, But if, if, if I disagree with the way a group of Christians is behaving in the name of Jesus, 
I feel embarrassed. Like, you're, you're disrespecting the family. That's the way brothers feel. It's a complicated relationship. But the 11th son of Jacob and the only begotten son of God pave a new road for brotherhood in the spiritual family. Jesus is among us as one who serves. That's how what he does with his brothers. He gives his life as a ransom for many. He is the true and greater Joseph, exiled for our salvation and restoring true brotherhood. And because of him, we come to the table in peace with one another. But, but in the New Testament, when, when they're describing how the table itself gets messy, do, do you know what's happening when the table gets messy for churches in the New Testament? They're, they're treating each other with jealousy and exclusion. And Paul has to come down on one of the churches, the church in Corinth, and say, if you are excluding people from the table, if you're treating some people as important and other people as unimportant, you're, you're defiling this meal. And so he says, examine the body. I take to, that to mean seek peace between you. Examine, if you have a broken relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, at least resolve in your heart before you come to this table to serve, to lay yourself out, to own, to, to apologize, to confess, to own your part in the brokenness and make peace with him or her. And so, brothers and sisters, on the night that Jesus was betrayed by his brothers, he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take this and eat, all of you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That what his brothers intended for evil, God used for good. And that's the same story that will play out for Joseph. Lord, thank you. Thank you for offering yourself, for coming among us as one who serves, for showing us what true greatness in your family looks like. And Lord, we wanna show the world a new kind of family, not one that is torn apart by jealousy, but one that is held together by humility by honor, that we would compete only in showing honor to one another. So Lord, in this moment, before we come to this table, we offer our relationships with one another to you. And if there's a name of someone popping to your head, resolve in this moment to reconcile. If it's someone in this room, maybe pull them to the back before you come to the table and reconcile. In Jesus' name, amen. So church, I would invite you to come to the table on the left side, receive the bread, which is the body of Christ given for you and dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's sing together in worship as we come.